Welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing. I'm your host, Connor Byrne. Of course, this is the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. And today is part two of a wonderful and unique story from Jan Gooding, who is one of the UK's best known brand marketers. Of course, Jan began her career in retail, where she discovered actually she really liked the idea of marketing. She joined uh, the agency world before moving client side, working with the likes of BT, British Gas and Aviva. She's now an executive coach and in 2019 was recognized at the Drum Marketing Awards with a Lifetime Achievement Honor. And it was and is an honor for me to have spent this time with Jan. And as I said before, we spent well over the agreed time together. So that's why I've split it into two episodes. Part one was last week and this is part two. So in today's second part, we delve into Jan's client side years. We talk about how BT was a pretty terrible experience, but a place Jan learned how to get things done, how to navigate complexity and influence people, something we know we need to know how to do as marketers. We talk about how you can think about building a global marketing function, something Jan did at Aviva. And we discuss some of the audacious things they did at Aviva to replace a 300 year old brand in the mind of consumers. And we go on to talk about how Jan changed some other things in the world. So she changed parental leave at Aviva. We discussed the importance of turning up as your true authentic self at work. And we listened to some really terrible advice that Jan got along the way. So I hope you enjoy this part two with the brilliant Jan Gooding. You mentioned there the, the flexibility you had when you had your 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 own agency. And we, we talked a bit about that kind of bridging and and then you, you talked about BT. So the client BT then asked you to, they seconded you, I think, for a period right. to work for them. And then you stayed on for three years. That's right. Um, that was like Selfridges all over again. I've never been more miserable in my life. But I, did do, I did do three years. I met with a headhunter after a month saying I've made a terrible mistake because um, I went originally as a secondment. That was all fine. So the yes. fascinating thing is when I wasn't actually an employee, a member of staff, it was a bit like being a freelancer. So it was a six month. They bought my time for six months, effectively. They then said, will you come and join and work for the chief executive on his strategic comms? I thought I understood what I was getting into. The minute I was an employee, it was a whole different, terrible oh, wow. experience. Um, best summed up for me by the fact that they they asked for my passport as part of the whole checks, you know, um, security checks, I suppose, whatever it was that I was, who I said I was. And as a result of them seeing my passport, when I arrived, I was given an email address, which was Janine, J-A-N-I-N-E, which is my full name, dot gooding at bt.com. I have not been called Janine since I was three. <laughs> I've been Jan my whole life. And when I said, oh, actually, that's, you know, I didn't want people to know that was my name. Yeah. Because um, no one can say it, no one can spell it. There were reasons why I was called Jan. When I said, oh, there's been a mistake, I need to be Jan.Gooding, I was told I had to go to my 
boss, the very senior Amanda McKenzie, who was the the CMO, and I had to write a business case in order to get it changed. And in that moment, I knew the disaster of what I'd done because I had been running my own show for a year, for 10 years, and I was now going to have to waste my time writing a business case. I wasn't given a laptop for 10 days when I arrived. All the nonsense that you get in a big corporate. So I thought I wanted to die but it was, I learned so much. I always give it as, unlike Selfridges, where I was just in the wrong dream. <laughs> that, that. Was, yeah, that was just hateful. I just wasn't, I just wasn't the retailer. I couldn't get excited about anything. The thing about working at BT was I was given really interesting, stretching, difficult jobs to do that I'd never done before. So I learned a huge amount in a negative space. And I often say to people, sometimes you can do a job like that for three Mm. years and it's the making of you because it's so hard, culturally so difficult. By learning how to get things done in an organization as chaotic as B2, huge organization, I just couldn't. I couldn't find the levers. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, yeah. Work out how people got anything done. I didn't understand the system. And what I now understand, looking back, because by the time I went to Aviva, I'd worked this out. Big corporates have like an official and an unofficial way of working. (laughs) There's the official governance. And I know you're laughing. There's the official system, which goes from the board down with these big PLCs. And they have their rituals and reports and decision-making moments and occasions. And then there is the unofficial system, which is actually how stuff gets done, which is all about relationships. And it's all about the horse trading of working with your colleagues and peers to sort of that. And that's the muddling through bit, which is where the work really happens. So I learned that. I learned how do you How do you have a stakeholder map? Um, I was mentored by the chief executive of the small, uh, the SME business. He was the scariest man in BT. I nearly died when I was told. I was told he's going to, I won't name him, but he's going to mentor you. And I just wanted to die. I just thought he's going to kill me. He's not going to. He's not. How can he possibly be? He's so frightening because I've been in meetings with him. I watched him chop everyone's legs off. But of course, when he was given me to mentor, because it was we've got to get the the gorilla silverback men to mentor these women who we because I was on all the maps of hypertension, hypertension, all that ridiculous. I mean, I came across all of this this HR distribution curves and the whole way people discussed talent and thought about it because it was weird because it was a system and coming from my background Lucy Goosey agency you know mad but I learned a lot I learned the strengths of it as well I learned the strengths of process but when I first went to see him my very first meeting he said um who are your 50 people and I said what and he said there are 50 people that you need to have a relationship with in order to get stuff done. Oh, wow. Are there? (laughs) He said, yes. I'm not talking about the people you like and the people you get on with. When when I want you to go away and I want you to think about who are the people you have to build a relationship with 
in this organization. So this was the unofficial version yeah. of the So the, the next time I went back to visit him, I'd worked all that out. And then he, as my sponsor, helped me get to those people. So he would write an email and say, I'd really like you to meet um, Jan Gooding. And so I, oh, I learned so, I learned so much, but was utterly miserable. <laughs> <laughs> it was very good for me. And then when I was in the right place, when I went to Aviva with wonderful Amanda McKenzie as my boss, as a very special team with Sam White and Nigel Prido and, and myself as her, um, direct reports. In fact, we still have a WhatsApp group called oh, Four, Four Musketeers. Um, when I was then in the right dream with the right boss in an organization where I was very excited about the agenda of creating the Aviva brand, you know, killing off Norwich Union and creating Aviva, it was just a wonderful assignment. I'd learned so much in BT about how do you influence. So all this stuff yeah. about what do you do in the first hundred days, who do you need to meet? How do you, this awful term, socialize ideas, but that whole stakeholder management piece. Um, and how do you, I learned the power of will. I learned the power of how strongly I felt about something and how good my case was and the extent to which I was prepared to stick to my guns actually could win through. So the whole resilience that we're, we're invited to have. I sort of suddenly understood what that meant. So I learned a huge, a huge amount. And I think sometimes we should do a job that we really, really hate because we're going to learn a lot about what when we when we're in charge, we're never ever yeah. having ever again because it's dreadful. <laughs> I've had a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you do learn. You learn so much from the wrong things. You know, and it is that, like, I think that that's wonderful. Um, and you've just touched on something that I definitely wanted to ask you about was that opportunity to build the Aviva brand. I, I, I just, I'd love to know kind of how it came about for you to, to get the role and what, what the assignment was, you know, because it was some amazing work that I still remember from, from that time. Well, Amanda McKenzie had brought me into BT. She'd been my boss there and then she left. Um, and then she was at British Gas and she was the one that brought me into British Gas. And then she left. So when she went to Aviva and said, will you come and be on my team? I said, you have to be joking. You've recruited me in twice. And you've left. And now you're saying, you know, for a third time, come and join. Uh, I, ha I hugely rate Amanda. She's a very, very special leader just stepping down as CEO of business in the community. So I was, I'd learned through my experience of BT that the most critical thing for me, having run my own business was if I was to have a boss, who that boss was. So Amanda was a very attractive potential boss because she makes stuff fun. She's clever. She's a real operator she gives you a lot of responsibility. You know, she really, she'll say, this is the assignment, off you go. She's not right. a micromanager. So that was the first thing. The second thing was a 300-year-old brand, Norwich Union, which I'd worked on in, my, in the past when I worked in advertising. They were one of my accounts. The idea of killing a 300-year-old brand to create Aviva with the aspiration to have the same level of, of awareness and consideration 
after two years that Norwich Union had built up over 300. Oh. That felt like a really challenging thing uh, to do. And we were going to do it in three markets, in Ireland, in Poland, and in the UK. So my role was global. Um, and she was also giving me things to do that I'd never done before. So I was responsible for global procurement. And I was helping establish a global marketing function because there wasn't one. So there was enough in there that felt like, well, if we pull that off, that'll be a great thing on my on my track record to have been part of a team that destroyed a brand and created a new one. Um, and also, um, I will learn new things. To run procurement will be mm. incredibly challenging. And how do you set up a global marketing function what is the governance around that uh, all of that attracted me and at the time I was going through a divorce and so frankly sorry about the dog, the dog. Um, frankly it was very well paid and so uh, I was I was running my own uh, consultancy again I'd been seconded into British Gas that was why I was there as the interim marketing director yeah and it was a very attractive package so that definitely was part of it. Incredible. And how did you, you talk about kind of building a global marketing function? How did you think about that? Did you, were you thinking more build it centrally with kind of light touch local? Or I'd love to know how you kind of thought about building that marketing function. Well, it was a fantastically challenging thing to set out to do because Aviva was a highly federated organization. So in some ways, it was something we could only do when we were all Aviva. So the transition to the Aviva brand was part of what would bring us together. Because if you were Hibernian in Ireland, um, Commercial Union, bizarrely, in Poland, Aviva, uh, Norwich Union in the UK, I think it's it's it, when you've got a common cause in one Aviva, that was helpful. So there was a sort of purposeful, what what do all our us marketing people have in common? We're all trying to build this brand, gotcha. potentially transfer assets, potentially transfer thinking. But the truth was no one even knew what marketing was. So it was a, it was a fantastically challenging thing. Even people who were working in marketing didn't have common responsibilities and accountabilities or view of what marketing was. Oh, right. so what I did was I partnered very quickly with Brand Learning, who are now part of Accenture and who I had worked with before at BT. So it was really important for me to, I obviously, I recruited my own team. So I had a head of marketing capability and someone reporting into her. So we had resources, but we worked with Brand Learning to literally define what is marketing at Aviva. Gotcha. What is the capability? What's yeah. it? We had like a pie with a with a slice going customer insight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Map out this is what it is. What are the skills that sit in each of those things? And you can imagine with Aviva, it did not include pricing. So it was bespoke and particular to Aviva. And then we set about developing training in each one of those segments of the pie and getting everyone at Aviva to go through this training. And we were very deliberate about using marketing 
case studies from within Aviva as well as outside. So we were starting to get, so we'd have a wonderful case study from Poland or from Canada or from Singapore. So building up this sense of, my goodness, we are a marketing function. Um, There is stuff for us to learn. We do need to have a common language when we describe our activity and what we do. But hand in hand with that training and development piece was also the governance itself. So we had a marketing leadership team where the CMOs from each of the big markets sat. And And we set about the business of effectively acting like a marketing board, agreeing with one another how we were going to govern and run the function. So we tried to think about people development and whether we were going to put our talented people in Canada being able to have a uh, an opportunity to go and work in Poland and all that kind of stuff. So we thought about how we could knit our people together, but we also made decisions around strategies and investment and helped each other build marketing cases in different organizations. But every single market CMO had to have their annual marketing strategy approved by Amanda and us. Okay. And we then monitored their progress and re- and required reports about the effectiveness of what they were doing over the year. And that was a huge shock to all the market CMOs because they had been used to simply reporting to their own local chief executive and board. And so to find themselves reporting up to group, both in advance to get approval of their plans and then to have us monitoring their effectiveness, you know. The, so there was there was tough stuff. It wasn't, yeah. I mean, in a way we gave what they got back. The benefit to them was the the training they didn't have to pay for. So we had a central budget for all the, mar- the capability development. And of course, if there's one thing every leader is always concerned about, it's the development of their own people. Yeah. So there was something in it for them that there was a sort of university of marketing being established at, at the group level that their people could go on. And they really appreciated that. Yeah. Which is an incredible thing. You know, you can't undervalue that, you know, particularly, you know, and then creating that shared view and understanding and language around, around marketing. And like Viva did an incredible job of creating, you know, building distinctive assets as well, you know, across the markets, which obviously, you know, came out of that time as well. And I, again, I still remember some of those launch ads that were done in our, the Irish version of a UK ad. So it was exactly the same idea. And well, of course, in Ireland, there was the stadium, the Aviva yeah, stadium. Yeah, still, it's still there. A huge sponsorship deal, which was a very audacious, um, a very audacious thing to do. And, and that was all part of, of the psychology of, Ireland is important to us and we may be taking away this brand name, but by helping this stadium get built and that was as much a PR exercise as it was a a marketing, um, a marketing exercise. I'm, I'm enormously proud of having been part of it. I mean, we did to the point of the target, we had, we had excelled all Norwich union commercial union and Hibernian brand uh, scores within 18 months, never mind two years. So Aviva was a stronger, better known, more modern brand after 18 months than it than Norwich Union had been or commercial union in, in Poland. So wow. given the drama of doing that, 
I mean, I'd say it for effect, you know, destroying a 300-year-old brand. But I think there's a lesson in for, for us as marketers, we can get enormously attached to brands. And perhaps one of the most difficult decisions of all is when do you kill a brand? And we 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 did it. I mean, it was part of the group's strategy. It was part of the CEO's strategy, this idea of one Aviva and one entity. Sadly, because of operational stuff, they're now only in three markets. Aviva were in 28 markets when I joined. Oh, wow. They're now only in three. The marketing side was incredibly successful. What didn't work was the proposition development, the pricing, and the profitability in right. all of the markets on the back of it. But but marketing certainly did their bit um, on that strategy. Yeah, I think that's interesting, that, that point about killing a brand. My, one of my previous guests, Loretta Dignam, talked to me about killing one of Diageo's brands, Kilkenny. And, you know, again, you know, a lot of people invested in it and she was like, it's not working. Make it a tourist brand and put the money into Guinness. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm simplifying it massively, but like that, I think that's a huge, um, you know, undertaking to do that. We're, we're going to run out of time. We don't do it enough generally. We don't kill no. things off. So yeah. we allow the complex to bloom. And I think what every now and again, you've got, it's like clearing out the sock drawer. You've got to rationalize the number of things that you're doing, the number of propositions you've got, maybe the number of brands that you've got, the number of projects you've got. Um, I think, And I think as we go into recession, this is one of the most important things for marketing people to think about. They've really got to focus and prioritise what's important and they've got to stop doing stuff that is nice to have incremental experimental pet projects whatever it is you've got to let it go at the moment yeah do less to do more i think is yeah and i think the brand gym talk about you know the core as well you got to, you know what is the core and that's that's the you know the principal thing and um, before we run out of time there's a few more things i do want to ask you and i'm using up your time because i could stay here all day um Towards the end of your time at Aviva, you changed the um, parental leave policy. So you were responsible for that. And I know when you, um, or I read, I don't know, I read that when you had one of your roles, you had had your children and you you had to leave the job like because of your maternity leave. And that may, might have prompted you to set up the agency. No, I was fired. You were no. fired. Yeah, well, no, it was absolutely shocking. I was, I mean, mate, no, I've spoken about this. I was the first woman on the board. Um, and when I went on maternity leave, I got postnatal depression. That was the first time. So my, well, I've spoken already about my, yeah. my bouts of depression. That's what sparked it off. So with each of my children, I experienced um, depression. And the reaction of the board was to, fi- was to fire me. Wow. Um, which was an incredibly shocking thing when I was at a very vulnerable point. So that's why I started my own business, which was which was great. But at that stage, when I was on the board, there wasn't a maternity policy even. And a young woman in the media department came to see me and said, oh, I'm so glad you're on the board because I'm the main breadwinner in my family and there's no maternity policy, so we can't plan. I don't know whether we can afford to have a baby. I don't know how we would manage, don't know how it would work. So... On that board, I said, I think we need to have a maternity policy. 
And the managing director afterwards came, these were the days where you had your own office, came into my office after the board, shut the door behind him, bright red in the face, and said, are you pregnant? <laughs> Absolutely shocking. So in some ways, it's no surprise that I was treated so badly when I then subsequently went off. Um, I'd organised to come back as the new business director, so I knew I would need something that was less customer-facing. Yeah client-facing. Um, yeah, back to me. And did that, was that kind of, I, I guess, stay with you and, and pr- like maybe pushed and prompted you to make that change at Aviv on the parental leave policy? No, no, it drove me, I mean, it drove me to set up my own business. Right. It was very, I mean, I was pleased that after three years of running my own business, I had a better client list and was earning more money than when I'd been a board director. So it certainly gave me the drive to go, I'll bloody show you. Um, and I'm pleased to say the chair of that agency has remarked that it was the biggest mistake they ever made, lacking me. Because of course I recovered from postnatal depression. Yeah. You know, I got on the pills and I was fine. So I went and built a business for myself that they could have benefited from. Um, but no, it was completely different. I was I was appointed as the uh, global inclusion director, as I called myself, not diversity director. And this was an idea that came up from the ground. Re- it was not my idea. So okay. there was a particular team in the UK HR department who had been trying to improve parental leave, as in for men and for women, in the in the UK. And when I was roving around thinking, you know, what are we going to do? What's my strategy going to be? I came across this team. They actually had quite a complex system, like gold, silver, bronze, I remember. According to how long you'd work there, you'd get different things. It was oh. really, really and in a flash of brilliance, um, because uh, I had a, a council people from across the, the, the globe in different disciplines. Somebody suggested, why don't we just simplify it? Why don't we just say, if you work as a viva, the men get the same leave as the women, whether you're adopting, whether it's surrogacy, whether it's your own child, in the market you're in. So in in the UK, it was 24 weeks. In Singapore, it was 18. In France, I think it was um, 12. Whatever that market had as what mothers got, fathers would simply get the same thing. So there was a beautiful simplicity to that idea. The pushback came from all sorts of places. One, because it was an enormously expensive thing, because men can parent for a very long time compared to mothers. So there wasn't the age cutoff around parenting. Uh, so So when you were trying to work out how many fathers are going to take this up? What you discovered was there were a significant number. The gender pay gap was huge. So men tended to be paid more than women. Mm-hmm. So it was potentially expensive when you looked at this. Uh, I think we got it through because the the group exec and the board didn't really think as many men would take it up as did. There was this view that um, it would be kind of career suicide, all the stuff that women, women worry about yeah. when they go on parental leave, which is why I felt it was so important. If there's if there's anything as close to a silver bullet on gender equality, this is it, because men then stand in the shoes of, am I going to take three months? Am I going to take four months? What am I going to do? Will it affect my career? How do I come back? 
the world will have changed while I'm away. All of that good stuff. It's very good for both parents to equally stand in those shoes. But I but I remember the CEO saying, but um, but men will just join Aviva to have this incredibly ger- uh, generous parental leave, and I won't be able to tell at interview that they're expecting a child. I mean, just so revealing, isn't it? Oh, that, that that there was that bias, conscious bias going on against women in in interview. And there was a French woman in audit who said to me, imagine how beautiful it would be if a 32-year-old man and a 32-year-old woman are both being interviewed for a role, but they are both equally likely to take parental leave. So I'm very, very proud of it because Mm. it did something for men and it did something for women too. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I, my wife, we've three kids and I saw it for her. I, I know she was interviewed and asked, you know, do you intend to have more children? Like, what? Oh, she didn't go for that job. But like, and I've seen she's smarter than I am by a country mile. And her, definitely there's been like the gaps, call it gaps, you know, and, and her career hasn't progressed because... Of that, and if I had had that opportunity to take the parental leave, you know, leave me at home. I'm the dumb one, right? So she, you know, and I, it, it, it frustrates me enormously because I've seen it firsthand. And I think you're right. Until, until it changes, and the whole belief and thought around leave for children being both parents, it's not going to change. And I love that, like you know, men having to have that. Oh. Will this damage my career? Like, I mean, it's just anyway. We could, we could do a whole other episode on that. And um, there's so much more. I I really do want to ask you, but I we are we're so close. Well, I've used up more time than I promised I would, uh, Jan. I did. I did have a couple of last questions. One was from my previous guest, which is uh, Meldrum Duncan from Curious Industry, and Meldrum. He was talking about you know, the barriers to entry for. Um, you know, for people to start up and create new small brands and, and really challenge big brands, uh, it, it are so much lower now, now than they were ever before. And, and his question was, is there a future for big brands? Well, of course. Um, I love brands. I think brands are the camp, the campfire of every organization. All, all a big brand is, is a brand with a lot more customers than another brand. That's all we're, that's all we're talking about. So, of course, the, <laughs> there is room for for big brands and there's implied efficiency in scale from my point of view. I suppose I would say this, wouldn't I? Because I've worked on some really big, big brands. But if you can get a high standard of quality, what, after all, what is a brand? A brand is a mark of quality and consistency. Um, uh, and so... If you can, if you can have a brand which has very high standards and is an amazing value, there should be no limit to the number of customers potentially you can have. Although I know First Direct have somehow got stuck at a million customers and don't seem to be able to to grow their customers beyond that. I don't. I really don't understand that. But anyway, so sometimes there might be a limit. Apple, we see. Um, because of their price, mm. yes, they can grow and grow and grow internationally. But but you can you can limit yourself because of your premium pricing or some aspect of your proposition. But 
yeah, of course, there could be any size, uh, any size of brand. And I think it's useful to have big brands because I think big brands can do good stuff in the world. Yes, yes, that is that is very true. And you're um, you do a lot of work with people. You're coaching people. Uh, you're involved with organisations. What are the th- I, you know, without trying to be so um, trying to say there's a there's a secret sauce, but what are the kind of two or three things when you're working with leaders that you kind of impart on them based on your experience to date? Well, I don't really impart because coaching is all about encouraging the person I'm coaching to think for themselves and come to their own conclusion. But I would say people are attracted to work with me. I mean, it's what I say on my website, because the things that I want for leaders is that they learn how to be authentic and inclusive leaders. So that is a topic that matters to me a lot. And I know is a, is a vein of inquiry, as it were, when, when people come to me for coaching, they are trying to work out who am I in order to be authentic and, and how can I be inclusive in my approach as a leader? Cause it's mm. difficult. And I think the other enormous cho- topic is change. So. Um, by definition, when you're having coaching, you're trying to change something about yourself in order to improve your performance. You're either things that you do well, you're trying to do more of it, or things that you think may be holding you back. You're trying to think about how to change that, be more self-aware and learn how to improve your performance in some way. And I think the, the deficit that people are living in all the time the change in their own organizations, the change in the world. Climate is you mm. know, a really scary topic. And then how do you adapt to that so you emerge as your authentic self, as powerful and influential as you can be? That is another vein of inquiry, I would say, is just the topic of change, <laughs> changing yourself, being more self-aware, but also dealing with the extent of change that we are we are living in. So in, in my coaching, I'm simply trying to, it's a bit like a pit stop, really. It's providing 90 minutes of space where people who are very accomplished, no one comes to coaching for remedial purposes. The reason people come for coaching is they're trying to improve their performance. They're grappling with something at work and they're just looking for a space where they can have a bit of a think about it with me helping them think, because hopefully I ask them some useful questions. Um, I seek to be encouraging. I think a lot of people feel very isolated Mm. um, and anxious, certainly during the pandemic. Um, People were having a really, really tough time as leaders. Yeah. Authentic self. I I had to talk about earlier on, but I I do want to touch on it just briefly and then I will let you go. I I promise. That is very, very important. Um, You've had experiences where you weren't able to be your authentic self in work and you actually kind of went and I I read... um, an article that that said you sorry phrase this incorrectly but it said after changing jobs you received dubious advice from a new colleague that to let people know you're a lesbian will not play well that's right um 
Yes, I think the this, this subject of authenticity is one that's very real for all of us, because as we try to create inclusive cultures, what we're asking people to do is be themselves at work with each other in a mutually respectful way. Not so we're um, culture wars is not what we want. Respectful, um, inquiring, curious, collegiate relationships is, is what we're looking for. Um, and to have fallen in love with a woman, as I did in my 40s, was surprising enough. Dealing with people's reaction to that, you know, was another complication because I was married, I had children at the time. So when I went to Aviva, I had fallen in love with a woman and I'd just been open about it. I didn't know what coming out was because right. I didn't regard myself as gay. So it wasn't something I'd never felt closeted. So I just told people because it was a fact I'd fallen in love with Lucy. Um, and I had to now deal with that in an honest way. I told Chris Jansen, who was my boss at British Gas, he barely battered an eyelid. I was so lucky. I did not realise the risk that I was taking. He was wonderful. When I came to join Aviva, I was told, look, you're going to work in the city. It's very old fashioned. Insurance is even more old fashioned. And what's more, you work in marketing, which no one regards as a credible discipline. So I really wouldn't be the most famous lesbian in Aviva if I were you, because I was going in as one of the most senior, like there were 12 of us at my level globally. Um, and it was really bad advice. But I did have that experience, which you're alluding to, that I went back in the closet. And it's not often in life you get the experience of something as potent as being gay, because for people from a religious and faith point of view have difficulty with that. And there are still 69 countries in the world, would you believe, where it's illegal. So I was asked to go to Singapore. I was asked to go to India, countries in the Aviva group as an open lesbian, because I did subsequently come out where I was illegal to drive as who I was. I mean, that's a really, wow. really bad experience. But for but I took this advice. I thought, well, it's a big job. I don't want that to be an issue getting those. So I went back in the closet. And it was a hateful experience because it affected my performance. If you are constantly editing in your head, mm. I mustn't say this. Have I? Might they know? Will I get found out? Because I was out at home, so there was always this. My radar was out all the time into whether my home life was going to bleed into my. Work life, I'd fallen in love with an artist. She'd painted two wonderful artworks, which I had in my office at Aviva. People would come in and go, gosh, they're wonderful. Who painted those for you? And I didn't feel able to say my lover, Lucy. Sometimes I didn't even use her pronoun. I would, I because I was fearful even of wow. saying it was woman. So when you experience that level of micro mental editing and the anxiety that it brings, I didn't talk about what I did at the weekends or in the evenings. I was hiding Lucy and my life from my colleagues. And of course, then you're being a liar. You're, you find that you're lying to your colleagues. And actually, that's the biggest problem when you eventually come out is people say, why didn't you feel you could tell me? It's such, so you have literally introduced a lack of trust between you and your colleagues. But this yeah. is why this topic of authenticity is so important. You know, you don't want to be lying to your colleagues about who you are and being so disrespectful to them that you, they can't be trusted to behave well. But I do think there is oversharing. And so 
for us as we navigate this topic of how can I be an authentic leader, we also have to learn not to bleed, as <laughs> it not to reveal everything we're thinking, everything that we're feeling. You still have to lead. And as leaders, you still have to absorb a certain amount of the anxieties, frustrations and conflicts of your team. Um, and it's not always helpful to be saying, to be almost competing with people around mental health or funny you should say that because this is how I feel. So I think right. this is what makes it hard. It's not just a great ripping off of the flaster and we're all revealing everything. But for me to be, you know, to have gone on to chair Stonewall is all the more remarkable when I, as I hear myself telling you that story. Um, but maybe that's one of the things that drove me drove me to do it because I experienced how incredibly damaging it was going back in the closet again. It must have been exhausting, like mentally just draining. I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. At the end of my review that year, Amanda said to me, you've outperformed in every way. You know, don't worry, you're going to get, you know, top bonus percentage, all that was all great. But she said, you've completely lost your sparkle. Right. I knew what she meant because I wasn't... I wasn't laughing. I yeah. wasn't. And with that, there was a lack of creativity, a lack of fun and enjoyment. I wasn't fun to be around. The very next day, we happened to have a team offsite, and I came out at the end of that team offsite. And I remember, I didn't know I was going to do it. We were doing oh. a round robin. Would anybody, what's the last thing you'd like to say before we leave the room? And I suddenly thought, right, this is my moment. I'm just going to say. And I remember one of the, we were only a team of eight. One of the people burst into tears. She was so moved by it. And and they all applauded. I mean, it was the most wonderful, warm, real experience. And I I never looked back. I learned an important lesson that even though I have had people say to my face, I have great difficulty in the fact that you are a lesbian because of my faith which is very shocking experience. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, I've learned the upside is too enormous. Oh, amazing. Jan, thank you so much for your extended time with me today. I apologize for keeping you so long, but it's been such a fascinating conversation and and I've learned and taken so much from it and I'm sure all the listeners will as well. Thanks so well, much. I've enjoyed it too. Okay, thanks. As I mentioned at the end of part one, I'd never met Jan before. So for her to spend so much time with me going so deep on so many topics really was a a thrill. And I I feel truly honored to spend time with her. All I keep thinking about since we met was, wow, imagine having worked with Jan. And I'm sure many of you listening have worked with her and had that wonderful opportunity and will reflect on the impact she has had on you and your career and the career then of many others as a result of her generosity and genuine love and interest in marketing. And of course, now Jan is doing amazing work coaching and impacting many more people and many more lives. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share, add comments with feedback and follow us on Twitter at that's underscore marketing. And if you or someone you know would be a great guest for the podcast, do get in touch. I have the email address in the show description. So for me, Connor Byrne, until the next episode, thank you and take care.